The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, we're going to go to the coastal shores of West Africa today to talk about the fishing sector. And there's been a lot of news in recent weeks about what's going on in China's distant fishing fleet off the coast of Senegal, Nigeria, uh, the Gambia, and Ghana, of course. So we've been covering in our daily newsletter quite a bit a real rise of piracy in the Gulf of Guinea. Now, some of this is happening in part because uh, China's distant fishing fleets and some of the vessels are turning off some of their transponders which means that people can't follow and track them. And so when they get into trouble, which the Gulf of Guinea now is a hotspot for piracy, they're not being able to be detected for what that. The pirates seem to know that, so they're targeting more and more of these fishing trawlers. Secondly, uh, there's been a whole wave of pressure now being put onto uh, local governments in Senegal and in Ghana not to approve licenses for new fishing trawlers. Now, the Senegalese have actually pushed back on that, and the Ghanaians were still waiting to see what they do. But there's been a long-standing concern in this part of the world about the presence of China's distant fishing fleet, also the fact that they are registering vessels under national flags, but still contributing their output to the Chinese fishing supply chain. So it's really not necessarily helping local communities, but actually going back into the Chinese supply chain. So a lot of concern right now, particularly in this era of COVID-19, when economic conditions in coastal communities are quite severe, there's a lot of concern that people will not be able to go out and fish because it's dangerous to do and to do those kinds of activities. So, so Cobus, a lot of different issues are overlapping with one another here. All of this is taking place against the background of collapsing collapse. All of this is taking place against the background of collapsing fish stocks um, off the coast of West Africa, and with them, the co- collapsing coastal economies. Um, so we see people who for many generations made an okay living um, for from fishing is no, they're now increasingly unable to do so because overfishing is, is causing the, the fish stocks to collapse and in the process for that reason then we see whole coastal economies collapsing people having to move to cities and the cities are frequently very overcrowded and underserviced so it's, it's very difficult to make a living there and in the in the larger kind of dynamic we're seeing then lots of people actually starting to migrate and particularly starting to migrate to Europe. So we want to bring you two perspectives in today's show, a little bit different than our normal format. We want to give you the macro, the big picture overview. And for that, uh, we reached out to Mark Godfrey, who's a contributing editor at the industry publication Seafood Source. Now, this is the kind of publication that if you're not in the business of seafood, you probably wouldn't see. But Mark is really an encyclopedia of knowledge about 
everything that's going on in the Chinese distant fishing fleet and the Chinese fishing sector. He's got experience in looking at what's happening in Southeast Asia, and he follows and reports on Africa quite a bit. I rely on Mark's reporting uh, to cover all of these issues in our daily newsletter, and and I think I'm just so excited for the fact that he was able to join us. Then after, we're going to get a, a, a more granular view on the ground in Ghana to Go back to Kofi Agboga, who is the executive director of Han Ampueno. Uh, we spoke with him last year about the conditions, and we're going to get an update on what the fish stocks are like today. So let's first start our discussion with Mark Godfrey, uh, contributing editor at Seafood Source. Mark Godfrey, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show today. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get started with just an overview of the Chinese distant fishing fleet. You're somebody who covers this in detail. You've also spent quite a bit of time uh, studying the Chinese industry from the bottom up. So give us an overview of the industry and where it is today. Okay, well, the industry really started in the mid-1980s when um, the Chinese policymakers uh, encouraged the development of a distant water fleet because it was seen as a a source of uh, foreign exchange revenue, a great way to to build an overseas uh, industry that could supply international buyers so that was like around 85 and um, China would have been one of the smaller players back then now it's uh, by most estimates by far the largest in terms of fleet size in the world and it would also be the largest in terms of government um, subsidies into that fleet subsidies for, 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 for fuel in particular but also for building of the vessels and um, it was uh, in the 80s and 90s largely a state controlled industry so it was big players like Liao Yu and the China National Fishing Company but now um, particularly down south in Fujian province there is a whole lot of um, other privately owned uh, fishing companies and they are uh, active all around the world so I would say it's still about 50-60% state controlled in terms of, of ownership but um, now there is just a lot of uh, also privately invested companies and um, they are really looking at the international waters because China has brought in a lot of restrictions in its own EEZ, EEZ like its own uh, domestic waters, because the stocks there are exhausted. So, you know, there's a lot of um, slogan hearing around uh, going to Africa and going to Latin America um, and creating value there and, and bringing back seafood to process in China, but also you know su- continue s- supplying um, international buyers from bases in Africa, etc. So some of that product doesn't come back to China. Um, any product that does come back is is import is free of any import duties by the way so that's a considerable advantage they enjoy and of course they get fuel subsidies um which is often the difference between profitability and non-profitability because a lot of these companies really don't make much money but then you know until you look at the check that comes from government for in the form of fuel subsidies it's not a very profitable industry 
you you mentioned that China is now the biggest player um, globally. Who are the other big players? Um, you know, kind of like which are the other kind of like major fishing powers? Yeah, well, it depends geographically, but the likes of Taiwan and Korea would have a big international footprint. Uh, Spain is a probably a top five or six player, but um, there are EU restrictions on increasing the capacity of their fleet so anything registered in Spain there are limits on how many new vessels they can launch plus as I said it's not a very if you cannot get subsidized fuel it's not a very profitable business and also um, the likes of Japan it was for a long time a very big player, but labor costs is another issue. So as as your economy becomes more of a high value economy, um, getting labor is a big issue because it's a it's a, it's real hard work on a distant water trawler, and even the Chinese are are now finding it harder to find workers who will do this work. So they want to uh, you know liberalize the laws that they can bring in Burmese and Cambodian workers and of course they they are using African labour in the companies, the Chinese fishing companies that are registered in Ghana etc. are using African labour We'll get to what's going on in Ghana yeah, uh, just very quickly on the on the, the size discrepancy you covered in some of your reporting recently a, a report by the Overseas Development Institute in London that put the size of the Chinese fishing fleet at 17,000 vessels or just under 17,000 vessels, while the Chinese government says there are only just about 3,000. Well, yes. Yeah. No, the, the, the Chinese government say they're going to cap the number of vessels at 3,000. They officially say now there's about 2,600 to 2,700 vessels um, because they, they remember the Chinese Ministry of Agriculture which oversees this sector they license all those so they know the figures but then um, I was knocked for six by that figure like 16,000 17,000 is an extraordinary size um, and I cannot, um, I'm still trying to dig into that to see where they got that figure. I know that there are a growing number of Chinese controlled and owned vessels which are now registered to companies in Ghana and in Liberia, etc., and flying flags over there. But um, it's I, I I would have put that figure in the thousands. Uh, you know, uh, my estimate was about, the real figure was like 6,000. But I'm 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 still studying how the OSI got uh, to the the sixteen thousand figure or sixteen seventeen thousand figure, um, because uh, like that's an extraordinary uh, size of a face. It's a huge discrepancy. There's no doubt. So even if it is six or seven thousand, let's compare that to what the European Union claims, which is they say they have two hundred and eighty nine vessels in their distant water fishing fleet, and the U.S. operates two hundred and twenty five vessels that operate beyond its. Ex- Exclusive economic zone. That's the EEZ you referenced earlier in our discussion. Sorry, can I can I, can I just add something there? Um, fishing is a very complex and often in the past very dirty industry, and there's a whole web of companies. I mean, if you if if you looked at any of those 
Lux Lakes or the Panama Documents Lakes, um, you will see the web of offshore entities which control some of these vessels. So I'm not sure if the EU is counting um, all of the vessels that are that are beneficially owned by Spanish companies, which are, which are registered to entities in Latin America and in the British Virgin Islands and the Caymans, etc. So that goes to one of the, the critical problems here is that a Chinese fishing vessel will come to Ghana, for example, and Ghana has regulations that says it will not license foreign vessels. But what ends up happening is they have a Ghanaian company that is a front company that takes over the license and then applies for it. At the end of the day, it's a Chinese trawler, but on paper, it's a Ghanaian uh, operator. Is that correct how it works? Yes, that uh, that is indeed correct. Um, and as I said, quite a lot of Chinese corporations, including fishing companies, um, operate from a mothership in the British Virgin Islands also. So I know several Chinese, um, large Chinese fishing companies with big distant water fleets and they're so-called headquarters is the British Virgin Islands. That's where they're registered. So they would be classed as a foreign company in China, you know, and uh, are the Chinese then counting those uh, boats in their figures is is another question that I can't seem to get an answer for yet. So the ODI report says that about 20, 20% of, of all of this illegal catch is happening off the coast of West Africa. Um, and as, as, you know, as, as we've mentioned, um, several of these Chinese ships are, are registered in, in Ghana, Liberia, and other West African countries. So I can understand from the from the Chinese side why you would want to, to register the trawler under a different flag, um, including particularly flags with, with for countries with relatively low levels of, of enforcement of, of standards. But what's in it for the governments of Liberia and other West African governments? Why do they allow these foreign companies to, to register under their flag? I think there are two reasons. One is that they are promised in good faith that uh, they China, by the Chinese fishing company that they're going to invest in processing onshore. Now that happens sometimes and it doesn't happen. There's a huge Chinese um, fish meal processing operation, for instance, in Mauritania. And um, th that obviously creates some jobs and processing um, trickle-down wealth locally. Um, I think another reason, and I would need to to spend a lot more time uh, proving this and but what what west african ngos tell me is that there's a lot of corruption and uh, payments to officials and in those countries and one of the problems with for instance a a chinese deal with senegal to which would have seen about 50 chinese trawlers arriving this summer now that deal was uh, has been put on hold after a lot of protests but it's just very very hard to see how they've how the senegalese law was followed in terms of publicly and transparently registering those vessels it didn't seem to go through the channels which are stipulated for in senegalese law so um, opaque deals and uh, obviously create a lot of space for uh, payments to officials etc um, 
um, that's my that's what the the NGOs in those countries tell me, and um, I do know that that they are looking. The governments there though are looking to get uh, Chinese to invest in ports and processing and you know uh, cold chain warehouses because a lot of these countries are obviously. Um, it's like wet markets, you know, that the, the fish is landed and sold and cooked and there's not much in the way of large um, freezers and cold chain warehousing that would allow them to perhaps I don't know, process and add value to the to the catch. Yeah. So one of the issues, of course, is is corruption, which we've been hearing about in this space for quite a bit of time. And it's no different than what we're hearing about in timber or other natural resources where there have been widespread reports of corruption by Chinese stakeholders going back years, even more than a decade. So that's nothing new. Uh, the other part is governance and enforcement. So one of the issues is the fact that a lot of this fishing is happening out in the distant fleet. So it's happening in t- deep offshore. Uh, that is, countries like Liberia and Ghana do not have the enforcement capability to monitor what's going on. And so how much does that play into it in terms of the governance issue, which is they'll just do it because they can and there's nobody to stop them? Uh, yes, indeed. That is a, a large part of it. But there, there is a way to... Um, to track vessels now more than ever. So it, if if the if if the um, Chinese or whatever vessel foreign vessel is uh, keeping its transponder on and it can be tracked and um, there's several like Global Fishing Watch uh, organizations which um, have funding from and assistance from people like Google who help them to create a real-time map of all the movements of these vessels provided of course that that, that the vessel keeps its transponder on as it's supposed to. Um, but so, let me let me stop you very quickly yeah. because this has turned out to be a double-edged sword in the Gulf of Guinea off the coast of Nigeria for a number of these vessels who have apparently turned off their transponders. And as a result, they've made themselves vulnerable to piracy. And so when they're boarded by pirates, they have no way of communicating their location to Nigerian security forces and so it's really an interesting kind of dilemma that they're in. Either reveal what you're doing and where you are with your transponder on or make yourself incredibly vulnerable in some of the most dangerous waters in the world. Yes. And the other thing I would say is that we what, what, what we call international waters or distant waters, there is typically a regional fishery management organization also, um, which is typically made up of, uh, members from governments from the regions who whose job it is to make sure that those areas of ocean are being fished sustainably now um they obviously have the 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 power to um police and well they have the how should i say they have the they have the um, mandate to police these waters but obviously um enforcement vessels are also often an issue so um even even outside the economic zones of these countries there there are entities which are policing and looking after those waters um and the chinese often you know, in, in official documents are promised that they're cooperating with these. Um, but those fishery management organizations, 
they're really an, uh, an essential tool in 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 in, in enforcing um, sustainable levels of fishery in those oceans. Can you give us an idea, roughly, about or like roughly what proportion of of the catch of um, you know caught by Chinese tra- trawlers actually go back to China, and and which which proportion go to other international markets? Uh, that's an interesting question. Interesting that you asked me that question now, because uh, I've been noticing recently um, whole new packages of subsidies from uh, regional governments in China to encourage their fishing companies to bring a catch back to China um, for consumption and value-added production there. Um, I talk with several Chinese uh, fishing companies who claim, like they focus on tuna and squid. They claim that they sell more than half of their um, catch um, in international waters or, or, you know, where they have a base to American and European clients. So my guess is that I'd say a good half of it is um, is sold outside of China. So just follow up. So, so this, is there any way of of knowing for for a kind of a standard consumer somewhere um, in the world to know actually where the fish they buy is, is coming from? Well, you there are various um, instruments. Some of them mandatory, some of them not. But like the FAO, you're supposed to at a retail level uh, have the 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 place where it was caught on the packaging. So you'll see FAO. That's the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN, and you'll see a, a geographic uh, data on the on your seafood packet that's supposed to happen but what often happens like is if, if an illegal catch is commingled with a um or, or laundered into a legitimately caught catch that happens um unfortunately often i mean there's two important developments happening on that uh, to try to control that though one is the chinese are being encouraged and jostled to join the port states agreement of the un which would require them to to register all the catches coming into chinese ports the international catches which isn't really happening at the moment and they would also be required to prevent entry to any vessel that cannot prove that its caught was catch was caught legitimately and the european union is bringing in a new um is actually digitizing all of its um catch data system so that basically you couldn't enter the EU if your um if your vessel or if you if the provider hadn't comp- hadn't provided the complete information but also the data on rogue operators will obviously be available real time to inspectors at various uh, European ports so that they can identify illegally caught catch but so if you could get the chinese into the un port states agreement um that would be a major development and you know they have indicated that they are trying to get their their ports in order to be able to do that. As someone who's been covering this story as closely as you have for as long as you have, how much optimism do you actually think, do you have in terms of whether or not that will happen? Um, I think it will happen because there's, there's, there's one other um, thing that's going on at the moment as well that's um, 
forcing governments to confront this issue, and that's the, the, the talks at the WTO on ending harmful subsidies to the fisheries industry. And these talks have been going on, can you believe, for over 10 years. And that's how hard it is to, to get a deal. And they've set a deadline of this year. And um, right now the haggling is over, like what constitutes a harmful subsidy. So, you know, fuel subsidies are, are harmful. Um, subsidies that allow certain countries build, uh, really, you know, build bigger vessels or trawlers if they've already got a a, a very large fleet um, and then the issue we just we talked about earlier like how to allow developing countries to fish sustainably but uh, how do you do that while also uh, preventing uh, Chinese companies from essentially just re reflagging and re-registering their vessels in somewhere like Ghana if you could, if you could sit down with with leaders in West African countries, um, what would you recommend to them, considering their the kind of their budgetary constraints, to sharpen their their kind of enforcement of um, against illegal fishing? Well, first of all, make sure that uh, you know, obviously, opposition parties have a big role in this, but publish all of the fishing agreements with company with companies in China or with because often you know the, the, the Chinese ambassador is sitting in on these on the, when these deals are signed make those all those deals public so we can see what exactly is in the deal you know is it like um, is it for 10 vessels is it for 50 vessels when does it become 50 vessels um, because these these practices prosper where there is obfuscation and lack of transparency so if the you know if the africans um aren't publishing all of that it's very hard for international organizations you know to help them also to help them to monitor who's fishing illegally and who isn't transparency cobus that is a theme of what we've talked about for for years and years, and that it's not just a transparency burden on the Chinese side, but also on the African side. Mark Godfrey is a contributing editor for the industry publication Seafood Source. Uh, if you are interested in what's going on, not just in Africa and China, but globally about what the seafood industry is doing, Mark is a specialist with a background in Chinese and Southeast Asian affairs. So his reporting is absolutely excellent. We include uh, almost every one of his stories in our daily newsletter on this issue. So he's a great resource to stay on top of what's going on in the fishing industry, uh, particularly with what the Chinese are doing in places like West Africa. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. We really Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Cobus, throughout the discussion with Mark, he kept referencing Ghana. So let's now find out what's going on in Ghana, because this is very much a flashpoint, given the fact that we are still waiting on whether the government will approve new licenses for some Chinese distant fishing fleet trawlers. So for that, let's go to Kofi Egboga, who is the executive director of Hen and Pueno, and to get his insights on what the latest situation is. Kofi Ekboga, welcome back to the program. It's great to speak with you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Kofi, last year at this time we spoke with you and you issued uh, a very severe warning and a serious warning. And you told us back then in last year, in 2019, that time was running out, that the coastal communities in Ghana were facing a crisis 
the combination of illegal psychofishing, which we'll talk about, plus the impact of China's distant fishing fleets on fish stocks, were creating a situation that was really untenable. Can you update us now on where we are today on all of these issues and how the, the impact of COVID-19 has also transformed the community? Uh, since we spoke last year, I think in the government budget of 2020, uh, it made it very clear and categorical that uh, it was going to end the practice of cycle in 2020. Uh, as I speak to you now, we are in July and the practice continues. Uh, there has not been any strong move by the ministry and those who are supposed to do the enforcement to get this uh, canker out of our system. So we still have it and uh, fishing communities are really reeling under a lot of pressure because uh, they are not getting what uh, they're supposed to get when they go out to sea. And this continues to be very worrying. And as we have warned that uh, something needs to be done, otherwise our small pelagic fishery will entirely collapse. Can you remind us um, what psychofishing is? Well, psycho is a form of fishing where trawlers uh, take off from the ports, go out to sea, and fish fish that they are not supposed to fish. Uh, they use all forms of uh, nets and uh, means to go out there to catch juvenile and pelagic fish. Ordinarily, they are supposed to catch bottom fish, but they adjust their nets so high that uh, they, they get into the pelagic and the semi-pelagic zone and uh, uh, scrape or take out all the fish that come their way. And they then sort them on board and freeze those that they have to sell to uh, an, another form of canoe fishers who are not traditional fishers. Uh, they buy these frozen blocks of fish and then go out to the fishing communities and sell them frozen uh, to the women who buy them and transport them everywhere in the country. And uh, the volume of fish that they are bringing out is very, very alarming. As at 2017-2018, we recorded almost 100,000 tons of uh, metric tons of fish that was caught through this process. And uh, if those fish were allowed to grow at least double the size, perhaps we'll be getting about 200,000 metric tons of fish. But as we speak to you now, fish that is landed by the canoe fishermen is less than 20,000 metric tons. And again, I must say it is worrying. And the practice of cycle is such that the trawlers catch the fish, wait at sea, give directions to their cohorts who, uh, who are the local fishermen, some local fishermen or businessmen, they meet them out at sea and they transfer this fish from the uh, trawlers into the canoes. And one canoe can land uh, fish up to about 450 times uh, what ordinary 
a fishing canoe will land in a day. So you can see the disparity. If one canoe is landing 450 times the volume of what one canoe, uh, a traditional canoe lands, then we have a problem on our hands. So President Nana Akufo-Addo says that this is not happening. But you and the Environmental Justice Foundation and a number of other NGOs have actual video footage of it happening in daylight. So it's plain for everybody to see. Who is doing this? Who is responsible? And what role do the Chinese have in all of this? Well, first, let me say that uh, we have made a pitch to the president, if he has not heard what is going on to put on his uh, fishing shoes and come to the beaches and see what is happening and make a categorical statement. That is one. Uh, two, uh, the practice is uh, continuing. It is the commission and the ministry who must uh, take decisive steps to stop this practice. And uh, we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel because only last week or last two weeks, at the Elmina Beach, you could see uh, between 11 and 13 canoes landing uh, each day with these cycle fish. What we think is that there is so much money to be made in this business, and there is a lot of interest. Uh, if you read some of the uh, publications, it casts across from the political level all the way to enforcement level, people are getting their share of the spoils. So what it means is that the interest level is so huge that uh, uh, putting an immediate stop to it uh, becomes very difficult because those who are supposed to do this are either compromised in a way or they are just not uh, interested because... uh, People, a lot of people think that there's so much fish in the sea that uh, whatever you take, it will never get finished. And in our local balance, we, we say sea never dry. What it means is that the fish will not dry out in the sea and therefore business continues as usual. And for me, it is very worrying. Spending most of the years trying to get uh, this process stopped uh, to the extent that sometimes you you think that uh, people could easily target you because uh, you are speaking against this practice which is bringing much income to a few people and uh, uh, it is not easy for us to uh, go out there and uh, face people one-on-one except for the fact that we will channel all our energies through law enforcement to get them to get this thing. Uh, put behind us. Can you remind us again, where is the money coming from? Who is behind this? Is it Ghanaians? Is it foreigners that are that are fueling all of this? We're just trying to understand who is behind all of this. One, uh, the Chinese have sent all these uh, 75 vessels, as I speak to you now, to Ghana to fish. The, the, the licensing regime for these trawlers are to fish bottom high price fish. But they have found a way that uh, if local people need uh, fish, then they can equally go out there and illegally fish what the local fishermen will wait for to come into their territory or their fishing zone to fish. They get them 
beyond these territories and then uh, freeze them and sell them. Now you're asking where the money is coming from. There is so much money to be made out of this uh, form of fishing. The fish that they target uh, illegally, when they sell this money, is not registered in any of the national records. So this money is circulating in, if you like, the black market, and everybody is getting their share. The beneficial owners of these vessels who are sitting somewhere in China, the Ghanaian frontmen who claim that these vessels belong to them, get their share. There are people behind who have to do what they have to do to get this process top. There are influential people who are backing these Chinese to come there. So it's like we are selling our birthright to these foreign vessel owners and foreign operatives uh, in our waters and in our system. At the end of the day, our Ghanaian people are not even getting uh, the much desired money they wish to. Most of these monies are repatriated back into uh, to the beneficial owners of uh, the vessels. So you can already see that uh, most of these vessels have Chinese names distributed over a number of companies. So different companies have vessels which are bearing the same name, except that the last digit of the numbering changes. So they have the Chinese name with a number 907 of 10 or 12 or 15. But different companies who are unrelated are owning the same vessels with the same name, only the last digit. So we think that uh, there is something wrong going on. Somebody sitting somewhere sending all these vessels into our country, distributing them to companies. The companies do their business and the money is repatriated back to one company or one person sitting somewhere uh, far away in uh, Asia. One of the problems um, in relating to Chinese overfishing off the coast of West Africa is that many of these Chinese trawlers are not registered under the Chinese flag. They, they frequently get registered under West African um, flags. Um, can you tell us where this situation is now? Um, because we've seen more attention raised, uh, you know, relating to this problem and where Ghana is particularly in, in relation to this issue. Yes, uh, when these uh, trawlers arrive in Ghana, they may be having their Chinese names. There are companies in Ghana who will say that they have imported these uh, vessels into the country. So they go to the Registrar General and register them and get a license from the Fishing uh, Fisheries Commission as a Ghanaian flagged vessel. And therefore, uh, all vessels in Ghana are operating as Ghanaian vessels, and therefore they are able to fish within our waters. By law, we, uh, the Ghana government does not allow foreign fishing vessels into the country unless by a special arrangement called uh, an access arrangement. But what we see now is not an access arrangement, but uh, the vessels 
owned ostensibly by Ghanaian companies and they have licenses in Ghana. They have they may have licensing licenses in uh, Cote d'Ivoire and Liberia. So they are free to move within these countries to fish. So what we want to say here is that all the vessels fishing in Ghana are not foreign vessels but Ghanaian vessels. But they may be foreign vessels that have been flagged as Ghanaian vessels and therefore they are allowed to fish in our waters. In nearby Senegal, the fisheries ministry has said that it will not process license applications for 53 Chinese vessels, mostly Chinese and mostly Turkish, but 53 foreign vessels will not be approved for licensing. There's a number of vessels now that are waiting in Ghana for approval, uh, but we haven't heard anything from the fisheries ministry there. What is the latest, as far as you know, on the applications for licenses for Chinese vessels or new vessels in Ghana? Yeah, we also know that there are some vessels waiting out there in the high seas, on the high seas to be uh, licensed and registered. But then there has been a conscious effort to keep the uh, number of vessels in Ghana at the barest minimum by the fisheries management plan which expired last year we were supposed to have anywhere around 48 trawlers in the country. And uh, initially it was around 105, 107, but it has been reduced to 75 at the moment. And that is what we are working with. If the ministry decides to register those extra uh, vessels that are on the high seas, then it means that we are increasing the numbers that uh, we have already, which for the management plan, it is uh, an uh, excess of demand by our MSY requirements. So then it will be a big risk uh, that uh, our ministry decides to uh, register these vessels. Ordinarily, what we have must be reduced. And if we are adding some more, then it means that there is something that is fatally wrong. So we are watching. We don't have the power to say no or yes. Uh, once they are registered and they come into the register, we will know and then we'll begin to ask questions. Why is it that uh, this has been done? And uh, we will demand explanations from the ministry. So this is the situation we have. We don't expect or we will push for no registration of those vessels. But remember that uh, the powers that be are also very strong because, uh, like I hinted earlier, people are making a lot of uh, money out of this uh, fish, fish business or fishery business. So uh, we, we, we wait and see what the gov government will do. If they register them, then we know that they are not committed to uh, sustainable fisheries, and therefore they are just uh, playing to the gallery. But if they do, then uh, we can pat them on the back and say, look, you have done well. So this is the situation we have. 
from from the outside, it seems to me because in that that part of West Africa, there's you know several small countries, one one next to the other, um, you know, and it seems to me that it, it you know some kind of coordination and and shared kind of a, a policy around around fishing and particularly Chinese fishing in 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 those waters would be a, a great step forward to to trying to deal with the problem where are we in in terms of the cooperation between different west african countries in relation to fishing and and china particularly yeah within the western and central gulf of guinea we have the fisheries committee for west and central africa uh, for the gulf of guinea which comprises of nigeria benin uh, Togo, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Liberia, and Celeron, seven countries that are cooperating under the umbrella of the FCWC to look at policy harmonization and the common platform to deal with uh, some of these issues. Only last week or two weeks ago, my organization and others together with the FCWC and Trigma Tracking uh, put together a proposal to look for funds to see how we can bring stakeholders within the West Africa sub-region from fishermen through to the ministerial level to begin to discuss these issues dispassionately. And if, for instance, uh, we can have some common policies among the seven countries, particularly, say, the fishing closing so that uh, if we have to close the season in Ghana, if we bring along all the other countries, we do so at the same time, or we do it in tandem based upon the movement of the fish and all that. But this will have to be discussed at the highest political level. So in our proposal, we are looking for champions. We are looking for people who think alike, like we do, to be able to begin to have a groundswell to get uh, the countries within the region together to look at the issues in the same way. I'm saying this because sometimes a, a vessel leaves Ghana and it is arrested in uh, Liberia, for instance. The owner is a Ghanaian, and when you ask them, where is your boat? They don't even know that the boat has left the shores of Ghana and fishing in another country. So you ask yourself if you are the owner of a certain property at any given time, you should be able to know where uh, that property is. So we are working locally and we are working within the sub-regions as CSOs and uh, trying to get governments to begin to talk together into more detail about some of these issues. The cycle that we discussed, uh, I was in Nigeria last year and there's a semblance of cycle there, I think in Cote d'Ivoire and the other countries. Maybe it has not come into the limelight as we have in Ghana. So we are causing the investigation into this cycle business in the other West African countries working with the Fishery Committee for uh, the West and Central Gulf of Guinea to be able to understand the issue so that in policy development this can be done and then the policies are harmonized so that some of these things that we are asking that they are rooted out of Ghana 
they must not just be rooted out of Ghana and transferred to some other countries, but if it is rooted out of Ghana, there has to be a total rooting out, and all countries within the West Africa should disallow any of such activities. So these are some of the things that we are pushing for in the uh, CSO front, and we want to push it aggressively because uh, our governments are very slow in reacting to some of these issues. So we are looking forward to policy harmonization, cooperation, bringing journalists together in the sub-region, train them to understand the issues that are affecting one country and whether the same thing is happening in their countries and how we can collaborating, uh, collaborate using experiences that we have gathered over the past decade to support what is happening in the other countries so that we can have a sustainable uh, fisheries within the sub-region. So these are some of the initiatives that uh, we are pushing for. So last year, you gave us a warning about what would happen if action isn't taken. Let's look ahead now to 2021, next year, taking into account all of the dramatic events that are happening now in the world, COVID-19 being one of them, of course. And talk to us a little bit about what you foresee in the next 12 to 18 months. The trawlers are still out there doing heavy fishing. Uh, the psycho people are going out there collecting the fish and bringing to the communities. So it is a very complex situation now. We can only hope that uh, after we have been able to get some reliefs out of this, we will uh, do the analysis and come out with the facts. But I don't see in the near future, say next year, that uh, our fisheries would have recouped because of uh, uh, the corona. Kofi Boga is the executive director of Henan Bueno, which, if you're not familiar, is really a fantastic organization that focuses on fisheries governance, sustainable livelihoods, coastal development, and protecting coastal landscapes in Ghana, as well as working on a lot of gender issues. Uh, and so it's doing amazing work, and we're really privileged and honored to have Kofi back on the program again. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, too. It's a pleasure to be here again. Kobus, one of the themes in both the conversations today was governance. And in some ways, I kept thinking back to the drug trade. That is, if you don't have the governance and stop the demand, the supply will keep coming from all directions, whether it's from the Chinese, the Turks, the Europeans. And as Mark pointed out, this is a dirty, dirty business that people are operating under shell companies, people don't really know who owns what and who's doing what. So at the end of the day, if Ghana, if Senegal, if Nigeria, if the Gambia want to protect their coastal fish stocks, they're going to have to improve governance. And that starts with Mark's suggestion on making the contracts with the Chinese and others public and cracking down on the corruption that Kofi was talking about, which seems to fuel the destruction of this ecosystem. Yeah, and I think there's there's a lot of there's a I think there's a lot to gain for the Chinese government in 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 being more cooperative in in making these two things happen, among others because you know if if you're looking for an example of the of the the most kind of old school idea of China Africa relations, the idea that China is just this kind of a, a, the the newest in a long succession of 
of you know external partners who's just ripping Africa off. That that narrative, as we know from from the incidents in Guangzhou, that narrative is still strong in Africa, um, and this plays directly into that narrative. Like if if you want to look for a great example of Chinese people illegally coming and ripping Africa off, this is your example. So you know, so I think you know, there's a lot of there's a lot to gain. I think from from more cooperative more cooperation between West African nations on this issue, and then particularly for all of them to also cooperate with China on on having a, a more kind of sustainable solution to to the current problem. Well, ideally, I agree with you. Uh, that's what should happen. At the end of the day, we also have to remember that there is a rather powerful lobby back in Fujian province and likely in Beijing representing this distant fishing fleet. And I think that there's a lot of pressure, economic pressure, put onto policymakers in China to maintain the status quo. So if that's going to change, that's going to have to happen internally within China. So there's two different ways of looking at this. One is what happens internally within China. And we have seen now that when China is motivated to change, it can change rather fast. This was with pangolins, the dog uh, reclassification, uh, also with, with ivory. So they have the ability to change. My suspicion is that distant fishing is not on the uh, agenda in Chinese conservation circles to, to, to push that change, to create that popular pressure from the bottom up that is needed. I, I don't get that sense. Secondly, uh, there is an opportunity, and I, I'm, a, I'm disappointed I didn't have a chance to ask either one of our guests about it, to put this, uh, this issue on the agenda at next year's FOCAC, which is taking place in Dakar, in Senegal. So it would be not only timely, but also geographically relevant to put fishing on the FOCAC agenda. That's the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. This is the summit that happens every three years. Next year is the big one. We'll see if it actually happens in Senegal or if it is one of these big online virtual summits as we've seen happen now because of COVID-19. Nonetheless, this is the time more than ever to put fishing and China's distant fishing fleet on the China-Africa agenda. I'm not sure it will happen, but this would be the time to do it. And, you know, it, it, if it happens, it could be a good move from the African side, because as we've seen in the past, China is amenable to pressure from from African leaders, you know, particularly if that pressure is coupled with, with media campaigns, um, as it was in the case of Ivory. It is possible to get China to, to change direction. It just takes a lot of work. But again, if African stakeholders, particularly in West Africa, are not on the same page, and there's, to me, an indication from what Kofi was saying was that corruption is preventing that type of transnational harmonization. I wonder if there's enough motivation to do this. And that's, so I'm a little bit skeptical. In some ways, I'm disappointed by what Kofi said. He gave us an update from last year, and it doesn't seem to be that much different this year. I don't, I didn't get the sense that there was a lot of progress. Maybe I missed something. But it makes me sad to think that, again, these communities are being endangered because of overfishing and because of corruption and a lack of effective governance. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not as optimistic as I'd like to be on this one. Final thoughts to you. Yeah, I think here Africa is again dealing with what it always deals with, which is one, corruption on the one hand, and the other one, difficulty to uh, to work, uh, to cooperate um, in across the border you know these it's always like so, so everyone who, who looks at african history always points out how african states were completely artificially imposed by by europeans and yet 
you know, despite that fact, African states find it very hard to work together in, in a, you know, in an efficient way. Um, you know, so so we, we're in a new era in Africa, you know, like it's all about regionalism. It's all about about kind of economic integration and free trade right across the continent. Maybe this could be a way for, you know, to kickstart those things for greater, more sustainable cooperation. But I'm also not super optimistic. So these are the kind of topics that we're going to be addressing more and what we've been doing a lot on our podcast, where you may have noticed that we're doing more agriculture, health, sustainability, uh, some of these topics that are not necessarily on the top part of the agenda because of what's happening now in geopolitics with COVID-19 and all of that and the debt crisis. For those kinds of coverage and that kind of topics, for that kind of coverage and those kinds of topics, uh, you really want to subscribe to our daily newsletter where we are talking about the geopolitics in depth, in detail, every single day. Uh, so sign up at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. If you use the promo code podcast, we're going to throw in a really giant juicy discount for you. It's saved specially just for our podcast listeners who make it to the end of the program. I like to see every week how many people actually made it to the end by using that promo that promo code. It's a great deal. So uh, so definitely go check that out. You try it for free for two weeks. If you don't like it, you can cancel anytime. You don't have to pay anything. Uh, but we would love for you to be part of our growing reader community around the world interested in these kinds of topics from geopolitics and sustainability to fishing communities and so forth. So that'll do it for this edition. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Studinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.